Hello and welcome once again to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. Today, our guest is Christine Turing, and she is with Green Roof Info Think Tank, or G-R-I-T-T for short, and kind of connects with a lot of other activities that she's involved with in just a moment. Christine will be with us, and we'll learn all about that. Thanks for listening. This is Heartstock. This land was made for you and me As I went walking that ribbon of highway I saw the listening to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Daniel Hogan is in the studio. And remember that you can always email us and uh, reach out, heartstockradio at gmail.com. Today, our guest is Christine Turing, and she is with GRIT, which stands for Green Roof Info Think Tank. Hello, Christine. Hi, Carol. Great to be here. Thank you so much for being on Heartstock. And can you give our listeners a little introduction? What is GRIT and what it is that you do there? Sure thing. So, um, yeah, I'm a collaborative plant ecologist, actually, passionate about biodiversity, healthy communities, and decarbonization. But I've worked with Green Roofs since 1999 in many different forms, uh, installation, maintenance, education, research. But since 2018, I've been coordinating the Green Roof Info Think Tank in Vancouver. As you ably outlined, GRIT stands for Green Roof Info Think Tank. Is this involved with like building planning and neighborhood planning? What exactly is the scope of GRIT? So our mission is to advance the widespread implementation of Green Roofs in Metro Vancouver. Uh, so GRIT Vancouver is almost like an industry association. We are a network of businesses, nonprofits, researchers, and community members. And the GRIT was actually inspired by our friends uh, down the Pacific Flyway in Portland, Oregon. So if you do a web search for Green Roof Info Think Tank, the Portland website will come up. Yeah, of course, all things are connected. And so the, the GRIT Vancouver was established in a couple of years after the GRIT in Portland. And is this connected to green and sustainable home building? Uh, in a sense, I like to draw people's attention to any futuristic views of healthy cities, you know, any drawings or renderings or examples. If you think about it, you'll often come up with there's a lot of greenery, right? And so green roofs are sort of the technology that allow the sustainable and uh, durable and low maintenance placement of vegetation on rooftops. Oh, very neat. Okay. So, Christine, let's talk about um, your background. Are you from Vancouver originally? And tell us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, life is a journey, isn't it? Indeed. Um, so, I'm a second generation Swiss Canadian living in Canada. 
Uh, I grew up to Swiss parents with two sisters, actually in maple syrup country in southern Ontario, but with regular and extended periods of time in Switzerland and other parts of German-speaking Europe. Yeah, so I really put my Swiss passport to use. Uh, I've studied, lived, and worked in southwest Germany, uh, as well as in northern Austria. Uh, my PhD took me to Sheffield, so I ended up living in northern England for nearly 10 years. I first came to Vancouver in 2006 for work, um, and that was to coordinate green roof activities during the World Urban Forum, which Vancouver was hosting that year. Um, I do love it on the West Coast. It's probably my Swiss blood. I just love the mountains and the fact that there's ocean here as well is like a, a double bonus. And so I returned here in 2018. And why green roofs? What exactly was the draw there? Why are green roofs so important? Well, green roofs are really important because they are pretty economical and very multifunctional tool in the toolkit of any city. They are promoted in many cities around the world because of what they can do for, for example, retaining rainwater. So stopping rainwater entering pipes, which can reduce flooding and combine sewage overflows in cities with old pipes. But of course, they also insulate buildings so that in the summer they don't need as much air conditioning. Um, in the winter, they need less heating. They extend the lifespan of the waterproofing, so the waterproofing doesn't need to be replaced nearly as frequently as, as if it was just an exposed uh, roof to the UV of the, of the sun and, of course, the extreme temperature fluctuations uh, from everyday these diurnal patterns. And, of course, my favorite thing about green roofs is that they support biodiversity. So we can actually create patches of habitat in the urban matrix, which uh, can be really useful you know, certainly for insects and pollinators, um, also birds, and of course for people, they provide really uh, improved conditions in terms of air quality and views. Greeners can be used for urban agriculture. So in a sense, the roofscape of the city is can be either a dead zone if we don't have green roofs, or with certain mandates and policies, it can be like a thriving third dimension to a city that it improves its health and sustainability as well as its beauty and function. Was there something in your upbringing, you said Ontario, is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Was there something in your upbringing that kind of imprinted you with this ecological mindset? To share with us, you know, how did you become so drawn to and, you know, building your life around this mission? Yeah, it's a good question, Carol. And I was thinking, actually, um, I have a, a bachelor's in environmental science and biology. And I just remember when I was growing up, I don't know whether it was the landscape in Switzerland or in southern Ontario, quite a contrast. Southern Ontario, where I was quite intensely agricultural, so there wasn't that much wild nature to be found. Uh, you know, streams are fenced in and... And then by contrast, Switzerland, you know, with the mountains and uh, the Swiss culture really values nature. So really beautifully protected, uh, you know, wildflower meadows and diversity and big animals. And so that contrast might have led me to have a, a super strong appreciation for nature. Or I think I might also have been influenced at a quite a young age from hearing about the term extinction. 
I just know that from a quite a young age, um, I had a strong, I was quite a passionate uh, environmentalist. I was involved in all the all the clubs at school and doing all the initiatives. And I remember being in a play, uh, introducing our community how to recycle when the recycling box first came to our community. So this drive to protect Mother Earth and, you know, give a voice to other beings who don't have voices led me to, you know, get a degree in environmental science and biology. I worked for many years as a plant ecologist, basically getting paid to hike in the woods. And eventually, so I, I turned to green roofs, probably after working about five years in the field, literally in the field, like in forests and in wetlands. And uh, and it, the reason was that green roofs seemed like such an optimistic, positive thing. I was really cutting up against a lot of despair, actually, working in the field, especially, you know, documenting at-risk populations of plants and realizing that the, the pressures on these populations and species were basically not going away because the pressures were things like development. It was clearly like development was not going to stop. So these habitats were just going to be lost. So habitat loss and fragmentation, hybridization with non-native species, pollution, yeah, all these different issues. And so that's when I discovered green roofs, when I heard of them the first time, I just was like, okay, that sounds like a better a better fit for me, at least for my mental, mental health. <laughs> and I'm wondering, where was that undergrad degree at? And where did you go from there? Right, yeah. So I guess that's the journey, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I did my undergrad at Trent University, which is a small university kind of like an hour and a half northeast of Toronto. Did a beautiful part of the province and the country and quite renowned for its environmental resource science degree. Still friends with a lot of great people from the, those days. Then I worked for a couple of years, like I say, as an ecologist. And then actually in 2002, I decided that um, I would do a master's in actually green roof research. It worked really well that my supervisor at the time at Penn State had uh, a grant. And so I I did my my master's at the Penn State Center for Green Roof Research, uh, graduating in 2005. Um, Again, worked a couple of years. This time I was in Austria, largely, and Switzerland. And in 2009, I went to England to do my PhD, which is also focusing on green roofs, and that was with Nigel Dunnett at the Department of Landscape at the University of Sheffield. Yeah, I never intended to go into academics, and I'm so grateful that both of my higher education degrees were funded. I really enjoyed the academy, proved that I could do research. However, I've always been driven to implementation, and personally, I find the research and publication process slow-going and a bit frustrating. Mm-hmm. And was that a big culture shock going to Penn State? Is Penn State in Philadelphia? Is that right? Actually, yeah. So I was, I guess there's different campuses. I was at Center County, Happy Valley, in State College, Pennsylvania. So kind of like right in the middle of the the state. Okay. So that's a little bit more rural and ag-focused. Totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Probably like the the Central Valley of California. Nothing like LA or San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. No, very rural. Yeah. Total land grant school. Oh, I I loved being there. I love the Appalachians. 
I was in the Department of Horticulture, met some amazing people, hoping to visit actually this spring. One of my best girlfriends, she's working at State College and working in biology. And yeah, it's funny. I remember thinking like, oh gosh, that was right when um, George W. Bush was in power and like Iraq was kind of happening. And I just remember thinking like, okay, just go there, keep your head down. Don't say anything, like don't offend anyone. I was gently corrected that actually there are some awesome people in the States uh, who also share the same views. Uh, So much so that I actually, like I said, met one of my best girlfriends of all time there. So, And what was the draw that took you to Europe? And how did you find things there compared to the States? Yeah, right. Well, I guess, uh, you know, like my Swiss Canadian upbringing, like with my family, we used to spend every other summer in Switzerland with our relatives and friends. And we would sometimes my parents would put us into school there, which was probably good character building, although it was kind of hard at the time as a little person. But I think those years are very formative. And I I, I'm definitely a dual citizen, so I've kind of got like a Swiss side of me that just likes to express itself. And probably because I grew up going to Switzerland so regularly every other year, you know, I love obviously speaking the dialects and just like the culture. So I guess when I go there, I'm just, I just switch over into like the Swiss version of, of the scene. Uh as I sometimes am called. <laughs> and as as far as the the ecology in your work and, you know, just being green, I get the sense, and it, it sounded like you talked about this a little bit earlier, that things are a little bit more advanced in Europe. Would you say that's <laughs> true? And what do you attribute this to? That is absolutely true. And I... I find it so frustrating. Um, Like here on the West Coast, I think we're probably like 30 years behind Europe, which, yeah, is deeply frustrating. And part of me feels like maybe I should just go there because, you know, I feel like almost like we're in the Stone Age here. But of course, I'm committed to, you know, seeing progress all around the world. And if if there's work that needs doing here, um, that's why I'm here. Yeah, why is that? I mean... (laughs) I remember my my um, supervisor for my master's degree, Dr. David Beatty, used to say how um, Europe dirtied their nest earlier than we did, and so they had to figure out solutions um, quicker. And yeah, I think in a sense that's that's one thing. Just those cultures are a little bit more. I mean, obviously the cities are way older, and the protections perhaps are more rigorous, for better or for worse, on you know, how land is used and resources. But I feel like also culturally, like even though even though those cultures are a lot older and essentially colonized, you know, North America, almost like the the quality of the capitalism and that sort of exploitative resource-based economy is definitely a, a North American thing, right? Where... And, you know, we're running into, we're certainly coming up to the limits of that, that false view that, you know, North America or Turtle Island is, is, you know, terra nullius. There were no people here before the Europeans came and therefore under the religious doctrine, you know, manifest destiny, what have you, that 
it's all free for the taking. But of course, you know, there were indigenous people living on Turtle Island for thousands of years, well, since time immemorial. And so there's something about the resource extractive economy, I, I think, in North America specifically, that is quite different from the European. So the European kind of like, they get their resources from here uh, and they are able to, you know, translate the refined materials into their beautiful cities and their sustainable methods. And and here, I mean, I really feel like the West Coast is the Wild West. Like our regulations are shockingly absent, very underdeveloped in any case. And as a result, of course, you know, sort of like a resource-based economy is investing a lot of resources towards, you know, extraction and unfortunately not even processing. So a lot of the stuff that that British Columbia, for example, quote unquote produces, whether it's softwood lumber or oil and gas product, it's often actually sent away for processing. So it's kind of a raw resource uh, extraction economy here. And so I think that plays into how our cities look as well. Yeah. So we're going to take our, our little break here and we'll be right back with Christine and talk more about Women for Climate C40 and how all that is connected in her work. We'll be right back. This is Heartstock. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. This is Heartstock Radio. And today we're speaking with Christine Turing. And Christine, can you kind of help us connect the dots to Women for Climate and how that is connected to grit? Yeah, sure. Love to. So, yeah, I've been coordinating the grit since 2018. And around 2020, we began doing almost like lobbying like speaking to municipalities about green roofs and uh, doing outreach. And I've never really done that type of work before. Like advocacy, sure. But like this was almost, it really felt like lobbying. And so in 2022, I applied for the Women for Climate Mentorship Program. And I listed as my project, Green Roofs, Cool Cities. Um, And I thought, you know, if I can get some support on advocacy and lobbying, um, that could be really, really useful. And so I'm delighted to be part of this program. Uh, should I tell you a bit about what Women for Climate is about? Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Women for Climate is a program within the C40 Cities Network. So if you have heard of C40 before or not, um, I just refreshed 
my understanding, C40 is a network of mayors of nearly 100 world-leading cities collaborating to deliver the urgent action needed right now to confront the climate crisis. So C40 was founded in 2005 by then Mayor of London, who convened representatives from 18 megacities to forge an agreement on cooperatively reducing climate chaos. And that initial C20 became C40 in 2006. And in the meantime, it's it's um, over 100 mayors from world-leading cities in this network. So because women represent half of the population and were also very important components of coming up with the Paris Agreement in 2015, in 2017, C40 established the Women for Climate program in order to highlight and empower the key role that women already play in championing climate action in cities. And then um, how is that connected to your work with Green Roof? Yeah, like with the GRIT. Mm-hmm. If I'm understanding you correctly, the C40 initiative in your mentorship program there is connected to Green Roof and expanding and advocating for that work. Is that right? Yeah, so um, through the Women for Climate program, first of all, I've got my wonderful mentor, Sarah Yaddo Baker, uh, who's really supportive as I develop this program. And on March 6th, actually, um, the Vancouver City Hall, uh, including the mayor and all councillors, will host a full morning where all the C, sorry, not C40, the, the Women for Climate mentors and mentees uh, from this Vancouver cohort will basically uh, do very brief overviews of the projects we're working on and kind of en- engaging the city to consider getting behind these these projects a bit more fully. So in my case, through the GRIT, um, I've been advocating along with some very core dear colleagues of mine. We've been going in to visit all as many different municipalities within Metro Vancouver as possible, with, of course, emphasis on the city of Vancouver because it is such a big city and it has committed to doing a Green Roof mandate, to establishing a mandate, uh, but it has not yet to date. So the hope through this uh, work is that we can help the city of Vancouver commit to actually creating that mandate, one that's appropriate to the, the culture and the economics of this city, such that, for example, every new building would have a green roof on it. And not only that, that these are good quality green roofs with the appropriate maintenance regimes, uh, such that they will be, you know, um, low maintenance, high functioning, and also multifunctional green roofs being implemented on a large scale. And how many cohorts, how many people are in this current cohort that you're involved with? That's a great question. So I don't have the website in front of me right now, but the uh, Women for Climate Vancouver cohort, if I remember from our some of our meetings, I think we're about 20 women, mm. 20 young women, each matched with at least one mentor. Mm-hmm. And how did you find your mentor? Was it someone that um, you located that was specializing in green roofs? Uh, in fact, it's a... Uh, we, uh, so Sarah and I were matched up, Sarah Yada Sito, we were matched up because she works in um, real estate with a background in urban geography and, 
yeah, this is her her first time as a Women for Climate mentor. And um, yeah, I guess she wanted to be involved in some way. And um, often, you know, the conversations we have are she's very well connected uh, to the development community, to real estate uh, in the region. So she's kind of offers, she'll kind of put out ideas of like, oh, you should talk to them or them. Um, or even just ideas in terms of sort of how to how to frame the offerings or how to uh, position myself uh, in a consultant sort of role in this way. So we have about three minutes left, and I'm hoping you can kind of share with us what you see happening here for the future of your projects. And um, at the very end, of course, if you could let our listeners know how they might find you. Um, in in particular, just how you said every new building would have a green roof if your uh, recommendations are implemented. That's far reaching. <laughs> Do you think this is, is this being well received with open arms? Um, yeah. So I guess maybe we'll split that the two um Starting with with that question that you just posed about um, you know what sort of demands might we might we make, and in a sense, I mean, hundreds of cities around the world have green roof mandates, green roof policies, bylaws, incentive programs, and Vancouver has actually been entertaining, been exploring different possibilities since 2018. So, I just put that out there because that's, in my opinion. Every new building going up should be designed with uh, multifunctional green roofs um, into their systems. That's just climate resilience 101 uh, in so many different ways, not to mention all the other benefits that green roofs offer. Uh, but of course, you know, I'm very happy to, to be part of um, the visioning and, and the visioning process that the city of Vancouver would choose. Um, that's just sort of like a, I feel like a, a basic common denominator that most cities um, have and it works quite well. Um, otherwise, um, you know, one of the big things that that kind of catalyzed GRIT, the Green Roof Info Think Tank, was the uh, launching of World Green Roof Day on June 6th in 2020. So that was quite new at the time. It was also pandemic. Um, and so we, um, yeah, we wrote an op-ed. A bunch of us got together to do that. And um, the GRIT actually founded around, uh, you know, through the Portland GRIT. It's kind of more of a social club. So we like to visit a green roof and then we'll go to a pub after. Um, just kind of like informal networking. So we definitely want to continue doing that. And World Green Roof Day uh, on June 6th is a great way to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so with regards to directing people to find out more about what we do, uh, the Grit Vancouver doesn't actually have a website at this time. We are talking about registering as a not-for-profit, uh, which the Portland Grit has done. And how might folks find you? Uh, well, if you go to worldgreenroofday.com, that's the website, you'll actually see the Vancouver Grit on the main page. Uh, that's us on the Vancouver Convention Center living roof on an excursion that I organized in 2019. How exciting. Thank you so much for sharing your story here on Heartstock. And amazing work, exciting work. I, I just love it. Um, and I, 
I have more questions. So maybe at some point we can have you back and, and just delve more deeply into the subject. I think it's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Carol. Mm-hmm. And as usual, we'll see you next week here on Heartstock. Peace. And the dust clouds rolling, the voices chanting, as the Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. And on the sign it no trespassing, but on